Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to slay dragons in Jesus' name. Amen. How many dragons did you slay this week? One of my favorite childhood books is about a little boy who dresses up and he's headed out the door and his mom says, where are you going? He says, to slay some dragons. And she says, oh good, make sure you're home for lunch. And the rest of the book, it's about all of his adventures, which he recounts very faithfully when he always gets home in time for lunch. There are lots of mysterious and dangerous beasts in the Bible. The book of Job talks about Leviathan, a fearsome sea creature. Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish. Daniel encounters four beasts, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear with three ribs in its mouth, a leopard with four wings and four heads, and then a fourth animal, which he couldn't even describe, except that it had iron teeth, bronze claws, ten horns, and then new horns spouting out of the other horns, and these horns actually had eyes. Book of Revelation is a dragon that is so powerful that when it sweeps its tail, it wipes out a third of the stars in the sky. If you do not believe in God or heaven or hell and simply read the Bible as fiction, as some do, uh, it's a story of light fighting against dark, good fighting against evil, and the lives of the people as they choose which side that they're on. When you get to the end of the story, that's all it would be. It would simply be the end of the story, and you would move on to another book and another story. But if you believe in God, and I need to stop and point something out, we don't just believe in a generic God with a small g. On TV and in movies and even everyday conversation, a lot of people use the term God, regardless of what they believe, trying to make it sound like all gods are the same. But they aren't. In fact, they can't be. Unless, of course, all gods are just imaginary. When you pray, it's important that you know who you are praying to. I know when you are new to the faith, or when you're not sure what you believe, or who you believe in. I know that our prayers can get pretty generic, because at that time, to be bluntly honest, we're, well, we're just panicked. But we work toward a personal relationship, so when we pray, we aren't just throwing something out at the universe, hoping that someone might be out there, you know, to listen to it. Kind of like all those, you know, signals that, uh, uh, you know, that SETI has been sending out, hoping that somebody responds. No, we're sending it out knowing who we're sending it to and that he listens and that he is capable and wants to respond. You see, we pray to the God of creation, who is also the God of the Bible. This is why our translation often uses the word Yahweh instead of just God, as a lot of other translations do. You see, when Moses was standing on holy ground, staring at the burning bush, and God said, I need you to go and do something for me, then Moses turns and he says, so what is your name so that I can tell the people that I'm going to work with? And God says, you can call me Yahweh. I mean, we actually know God's name. I mean, that is pretty amazing. Now, the entire purpose for the Bible is to lead us to Jesus, because at the end of the book of Revelation, or the end of your life, whichever comes first, eternity begins, and everyone is going to live forever. The only question is where you're going to spend eternity, and there are only two options, and that's heaven and hell. Now, notice how this changes the story in the Bible. The Bible is still a book about epic battles between light and darkness, good and evil, and the consequences based upon which side you choose. But read in the light of where you will spend eternity, it's important that it is no longer fiction. 
In Ecclesiastes 3, King Solomon writes, What does the worker gain from his struggles? I've seen the task that God has given people to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot understand the work God has done from beginning to end. It's that part. God has set eternity in our hearts. That's important. Solomon is talking about how we run through life going from one thing to another, looking for validation, for purpose, for love, for meaning. And we just don't have it in us to figure the whole thing out. We're, we're always, you know, we're always just this short, we think, of finding what we really, really need to make us happy. That's why the last book of the Bible is called Revelation. You see, God has to help us figure it out by revealing things to us. But while he's helping us figure it out, we have this yearning in our hearts and souls for something that is beyond this world and this life, something that's forever. C.S. Lewis said, the fact that our hearts yearn for something that earth simply cannot supply is proof that heaven must be our home. And this is where the Bible becomes more than a storybook. It's a GPS, a map, a star, a giant blinking sign that says, this way, home. We live in one of those periods in time where God isn't important. Heaven and hell are how we describe our jobs or our relationships or Disneyland. And I'll figure out, let you figure out which one of those is which. Politicians and sports figures are actually our gods. And you can get to heaven by any route you choose. That's assuming you believe in heaven. And by the way, this isn't anything new. When Daniel got out of the lion's den, he said, In the days of those evil kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. St. Paul, who, by the way, remember, it used to be the evil Pharisee Saul. He said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it was Jesus who said, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. Because God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So if you're having problems choosing sides in this epic battle, or just trying to figure out if the whole God thing is nothing more than make-believe, the Bible makes it very clear. In the end, God wins, and the darkness loses. Oh, and God gets the final word on everything. But also, and, and this is really important, God loves you. And he wants you to be with him forever in heaven. And, and he says, you don't need to be afraid of me unless you choose to be against me. See, from a purely personal point of view, what do you have to lose? Now, where the challenge often comes in, well, it's when we compare what the Bible promises with what's actually happening in our world today. If God is winning, then why are so many people dying? Why are there so many wars? Why all the droughts and the blizzards and the hatred and the homelessness? If God is winning, shouldn't everything be getting better? Yeah, apostles ask the exact same question. The book of Job and Daniel and especially Revelation tell us that God is allowing the devil to have his season where he gets to do his best to steal as many people away from God as he can. I know that sounds strange, especially when I tell you that the reason that God allows this is because he loves us. Because part of his love is to give us choices, even if we don't always make the right choice. God doesn't want to lose us, but, but neither does he want to turn us into robots with no choices, no freedom, 
and no life. If you've never thought about it before, you know, every time somebody says, why doesn't God just fix everything? The only way for God to do that is to remove all of the bad choices. And, and by the way, what we're really asking for is not for God to remove all choices. We just want him to remove everyone else's choices, especially the bad choices they make that make our life miserable. You see, our choices are okay. In fact, let's face it, we happen to know that we are practically perfect in every way, right there with Mary Poppins. So it's really only the other people that God needs to help. If only that were true. If we are honest, the only earthly way to keep us from sinning is to remove all the possibility of sin. Is that a life that you would like to live? See, there is another way. It involves death and resurrection and a complete and total change of heart, which is something that only God can do. See, when we get to heaven, God isn't going to remove our ability to choose, but rather in and through love, we will finally be able to make the right choice every single time. We aren't going to be robots in heaven, just the opposite. We will have complete and total freedom, which will allow us to put everyone else, especially God, first. We will also fully understand all the things in the Bible we struggle with right now because we'll see it and we'll understand it from God's perspective. Romans 13 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. We will also fully understand all the things in the Bible. Why? Because the entire book of 1 John, it's about perfect love. And it's about this love that God is drawing us into. That's why we'll be able to understand everything. Because once we're drawn into this perfect love, which is God's love, this is what John writes. He says, in this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. For we are as he is in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. In our lessons today, Jonah is called to preach to the people of Nineveh so that they are not lost for all eternity. Jonah really struggles with God loving these people. VeggieTales says that they were guilty of fish slapping, but it was actually much, much worse. Jonah's biggest thing against them is that they weren't Jewish. Now, God kept working on Jonah's heart until he went and preached. And yeah, the, the circumstances that brought that about were pretty extreme. But, and the people repented, and they were saved. And yet at the end of the book, Jonah is sitting under the wilted tree, angry at God because of his grace. Jonah had not reached perfection in love, at least not yet. I love the story because it says that when I struggle with God's love for somebody, I'm not alone. This is one of those dragons that needs to be slain. In the gospel lesson, Jesus tells some fishermen to follow him, and they do. And yet, over the next three years, these fishermen will have doubts. They will argue with Jesus. They will mess up, sometimes extremely. They will misunderstand him. They will run away from him. They will betray him. Again, it all sounds very, very familiar, and I'm just talking about my life and my experiences. As we read the Bible, it peels back layers of human life so that we can see God at work. Now, remember what Solomon said, we can't understand the work that God has done from beginning to end. But we can catch glimpses of it, moments where it totally makes sense and suddenly the light bulb comes on and the darkness isn't nearly as dark. But it is a very, very slow and painstaking process. 
When the prophets Daniel and John talk about beasts with heads and horns and big tails, when Job talks about Leviathan, when King David says, Lord, don't let me have to go down into that pit. It's dark down there. They're pointing to the very real monsters in this world. Oh, maybe they don't have multiple heads or breathe fire or able to sweep a third of the stars out of the sky, but they do make a mess of our world and our community and our life. And they need to be slain because they're messing us up. You know, the best stories are the ones that use all sorts of imagery to get our attention. But we're able to take all those images and connect them to the images and the events that are going on in our life. In other words, when we see those images and all the things before us, we say, you know what that reminds me of? See, a lot of people read the Bible to know the future, specifically their future in heaven and their enemy's future in hell. And that becomes very clear in the book of Jonah, and he's not the only one that felt that way. So much so that Jonah also thought he could cancel God's will by simply not going to Nineveh. Well, you know what, God? I won't go, and therefore you will have to condemn them. (sighs) But instead, God gave him a taste of his own medicine which when he was swallowed by a giant fish and spent three days in there among the acid and seaweed and dead fish, really got to him so much so that he says, okay, God, I get it. There came that moment he was vomited out on dry ground, and from there he went and preached to the Ninevites about love, uh, about grace, because it was something that was fresh in his mind. The process was painful and also very, very necessary. We are all fighting various monsters. We may call them by different names. We may use different descriptions. But it turns out the monsters under our bed, in our closets, and in the shadows are very, very real. When we see this, it changes the way we view the story and the storyteller when we look at the Bible. God does not expect us to understand his story perfectly. Solomon says we just aren't capable of that. Nor does God expect us to tell the story perfectly. The disciples are living proof of that. What God expects is for us to talk about sin and repentance and baptism and confession and resurrection and faith and grace and love and all the other questions that we have. Not as experts, but as fellow sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior. And as we compare stories, we discover how God is still at work even in the likes of us. When we have honest and open discussion, centered not in our feelings, but actually in the Bible, it restores our faith because it pulls us out of ourselves and into the lives of others, who, as it turns out, have just as colorful, messy, upside-down stories as we do. Jesus invites us into a story that is bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than our American culture. It's bigger than our imaginations and a lot bigger than any fiction or horror stories that have ever been written And as we are drawn into not just a story, but the story, we discover why the Bible is so different. You see, it's not just about good finally taking place and justice finally happening. Because let's face it, that happens at the end of just about all the books. It is about those things, but it's the how those things take place that really make the difference. How does justice come about? How does good finally conquer evil? To know love is to know life. See, if you do not know love, you are dead. And I'm not just talking metaphorically either. The only hope for those who are dead is a resurrection. St. John says perfect love casts out fear. And if we're honest, it's not the monsters that we're actually scared of. It's the pain they cause, the disruptions in our life, all those things that we really don't want to have to deal with. 
And for both those who believe in God and those who do not believe in God, we tend to share the same prayer, which is often, just God, remove my pain. And yet, in the strangest of fashions, it is the pain that teaches us the most about love, especially, by the way, when we find ourselves in the pain of those who do not believe in Jesus and have no hope of it ever actually, well, becoming less painful, let alone going away. To suffer for another is not only to live life at its fullest, but also at its holiest. What Jonah discovered was even his enemies didn't deserve to spend eternity in something worse than the belly of a fish. As much as he wished it, in the end, he just couldn't do it to them. There, the gospel began its saving and resurrecting work, which wasn't finished, by the way, when the story ended, but which we pray did get finished before Jonah came to his end. When we imagine Jesus on the cross, looking down on the crucifying crowd, and him actually looking out over them and saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. No truer statement has ever been made, at least in the they do not know what they do part. And yet Jesus died for us anyway. What kind of love does that take? What kind of love does it take in order to forgive people that are crucifying you? That's exactly what the Bible wants to share with us. That God will keep working in us and through us, through our pain and suffering and successes and doubts, until we not only come to know love, but we begin to live His love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.